Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Apple, and Google. And uh, you can also check us out at the Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There you'll get um, brief write-ups on older movies that I've seen for the first time, uh, early access to uh, recent film reviews, as well as uh, deeper dives. Um, last last month, I talked a little bit about film noir in retrospect, in context of the uh, films I watched for last month's noir vember. In October, I did a deep dive on the uh, directorial work of Clive Barker and how it compares to his written word. And uh, this month, I'm basically going to wrap things up by discussing my 10 favorite films that I watched for the first time this year, as well as my five favorite rewatches. I felt like that was that was kind of an easy uh, thing to wrap up the you're with, and that's going to be at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. I'm pleased to be joined once again by Matthew Saliba. He's been on the podcast several times before, and as and as is the case, we're going a little bit off the beaten path. Um, last year was a lot about kaiju films and Godzilla. The, earlier this year, we talked about uh, Sergio Leone's Men With No name trilogy and comparing it to Kurosawa's Yojimbo and Sanjuro. Today, we are talking about a uh, filmmaker that ranks as his fa- Matthew's favorite filmmaker of all time, uh, Jess Franco. And he, and to prepare for this, I've started watching some of uh, Franco's work for the first time. And uh, Matthew, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, believe it or not, uh, this is if, as, as as enthusiastic as I am about kaiju. Uh, that's nothing compared to uh, Jess Franco. I've really, really been looking forward to this. So I'm going to let Matthew kind of drive the conversation here because of the fact that he's more familiar with Franco than I am. Um, like I said, this was my so I first started watching. Uh, Franco's films in preparation for this podcast. I watched the three films that we're going to talk about today, as well as a couple of other ones we're not really going to talk about. Um, Matthew, how did you get first get into uh, Franco's work? Well, it was all thanks to uh, a friend of mine named uh, David Zuzello. Uh, so uh, this might be dating me, but uh, back in the days, uh, there used to be things called message boards. Uh, where, <laughs> where you know, people would talk about films and uh, you know, and and inevitably get into fights. Not unlike Facebook, actually. So it's really, uh, but um, so there was a message board called uh, Horror. Uh, I can never pronounce that word, but Horror H. Well, you know what I'm saying, Horror HQ, mm-hmm. and it was run with Zuzello. And um, <clears throat> this guy was an encyclopedia of uh, genre cinema and in particular, uh, European genre cinema. So he would always be mentioning names and certain films with this uh, fevered passion. And it was really contagious because uh, a bunch of us who were friends on the board started uh, 
um, taking him up on his uh, recommendations, which uh, sort of led to the whole uh, damn you Davy Z uh, movement <laughs> whenever he would recommend something that wasn't terribly uh, good. But, uh, but Jess Franco is uh, one of the many filmmakers he would talk about. And uh, eventually, um, when they started uh, selling these films on DVD, uh, back when DVD first started, I jumped on the bandwagon and started exploring some of his work. And uh, I have to admit, um, you know, in the world of cult cinema, some people would say cult cinema in of itself is an acquired taste. Um, but in the world of acquired taste, Jess Franco is an acquired taste. So, uh, and then, of course, there's Jean Rollin, who's an acquired taste in a world where Jess Franco is an acquired taste, but that's a whole other story. But, uh, but yeah, he's... Um, now, I, I couldn't say for sure. Uh, I, I want to say yes, but he may very well be one of the most prolific filmmakers ever, um, depending on who you, um, who you trust. Uh, he's directed anywhere between 140 to 215 feature films. Now, um, according to Stephen who wrote the definitive uh, tome on the work of Jess Franco, because he actually watched all the films he's ever made, uh, I believe Jess Franco has directed, uh, produced, uh, acted, and wrote, uh, did the music for uh, approximately 173 feature films. Um, the only other filmmaker that comes close that I could think of is maybe Takashi Miike, who did uh, Itchy the Killer Audition. I think he recently off of 100 film marks, so he's getting there. And there's another filmmaker, a woman named Doris Wishman, uh, who would direct the, these sexploitation films well into her 90s when she eventually passed on. So, And she, I think, hit the 100 film mark as well. But uh, but yeah, I think Jess Franco is by far the most uh, prolific filmmaker. And um, the best way to describe him, and uh, this is kind of what I like to say to people who are looking to get into him, is that he's sort of the um, <clears throat> the David Bowie of cinema. And uh, what I mean by that is much like how David Bowie never stuck to one certain sound, he, uh, he, he continually uh, uh, reinvented himself, uh, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And Jess Franco is a lot like that. And I think when you have a filmography that's in the triple digits, um, <clears throat> you know, um, it's, it's probably easier to be a David Bowie than, let's say, if you were... A Sergio Leone when you only directed seven films you don't that's not much room to sort of uh style too much so like when Franco began in the 60s um <clears throat> he started uh, by directing these uh, beautiful gothic horror films that wouldn't look out of place in uh, the universal horror library or under the uh, tutelage of uh, Val Luton um, and they're really beautiful to look at. And then after that, he sort of went into the uh, what I call the spy-fi genre, which is uh, spy and science fiction. And he specialized a lot in that. Uh, probably one of the more notable films he did was a film I think you watched, which I guess we're not going to really talk about too much. But uh, he did a film called The Girl from Rio, mm -hmm. uh, a wonderfully subversive take on the genre. Um, and in many respects, almost like the forefather, uh, the forerunner of a film like The Naked Gun, because there's so many physical gags. Like one of my mm -hmm. favorite thoughts is when uh, there's this girl swimming in the, the pool and then the phone rings and she takes it and then, you know, she continues to swim while she's got the phone on her. So little things like that. Uh, that's another thing about Jess Franco is that he, uh, he was very much ahead of his time in, in a lot of different respects. Um, you know, uh, for example, <clears throat> now this is a bit of a contentious note because, but, uh, but I, and we can maybe get into that a little later, but, uh, in Italy, there's a genre called the, the giallo, 
Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's they're basically these uh, whodunit murder mysteries that are set in Europe with beautiful locations, uh, Baroque cinematography, and sometimes inappropriate music. Um, <laughs> but uh, and now it's because that's a uniquely Italian genre. Um, Mario Bava is generally regarded as being the inventor of that genre with uh, his film Evil Eye of 1963. Uh, but um, you know. Uh, when you consider how the term kaiju, uh, which used to be a Japanese thing, but now is sort of this catch-all term that people use to describe any sort of giant monster movie, um, if, if, if we're going to go with that, then technically the giallo, you know, it, Italians weren't the only ones who made jally. Uh, and in many respects, I feel that Jess Franco's film in 1962, the uh, sadistic Baron von Klaus, uh, was very much the first giallo because it was a murder mystery and there were a lot of uh, shots that Mario Baba kind of employed in his own films. So, um, so yeah, Jess Franco invented a lot of genres. Um, as far as uh, the portrayal of women on film, he was also very much ahead of his time because women weren't obviously given the kind of uh, leeway to create interesting characters the way they are, but that's not necessarily the case in Jess Franco's films because I would argue that uh, some of his best work involved women in, in strong leading roles. So he's, he's very much ahead of his time in that. Um, one thing, though, um, as you can probably imagine, uh, when you have a filmography in the triple digits, your batting average isn't going to be 1,000. Mm -hmm. It might not even be 500. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, really, like, um, I could, I, I, I've managed to, like, whittle his, his filmography down from, like, 173 to maybe 12 or 15 films that I would really recommend. Um, but, yeah, when you, when, with all the films that he's made, um, I feel like it's very important um, that your first experience with Jess Franco is a good one because um, his career is kind of divided into two different categories. You've got like the golden age, which is 1962 to 1973. Um, and then you have like the silver age from 1973 to about 1983. And then after that, he sort of um, kind of became a full on X-rated filmmaker for most of the 80s. And I feel like, you know, if your first experience with Jess Franco is a film called A Butt Crack for Three, uh, you not, which is true, that's actually one of the films that he made. Um, he, um, <laughs> anyway, so um, if that's your first experience with Jess Franco, you may not be inclined to want to discover the rest of his work. Um, but the good thing about it is that there's so many DVD and Blu-ray labels out there that have put out a lot of his seminal films that you could theoretically study his work in chronological order. Uh, I mean, you might not be able to watch all 173 films, but you can certainly catch about 40 or 50. And from there, uh, I think you'll find that this the journey that he goes on as a filmmaker is really, really interesting because he's never... He's dabbled in virtually every genre that you can think of, uh, including uh, Star Wars space operas type films. Uh, he did a film like in the 80s, I think, called The Sex. The Sex is Crazy, and it's about a, uh, an actress who gets abducted by aliens and they impregnate her and all. It's, 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 it's something, to be sure. So anyway, I, I remember your original question was, how did I get into Jess Franco? Uh, it was through my friend, uh, Davy Z. And, um, you know, just my general interest in European genre cinema. Um, what was it about Franco's work that drew you further and further into uh, watching it? 
Well, um, I mean, I know you haven't seen all the films that I've made. I know you've only seen Eroticide, but I'm sure as you could probably gather from Eroticide, uh, I'm very interested in um, in drama and genre, but also uh, infusing that with uh, eroticism. And uh, in many respects, Jess Franco is sort of the godfather of uh, erotic cinema, um, as far at least as far as erotic genre cinema goes, because there are certain erotic films that you know, just sort of cut to the chase. And, well, I mean, they're not really the most interesting films. I mean, like, Jeff Franco basically um, makes these stylish exploitation in B-movies, but he also infuses it with a lot of eroticism, which people weren't really doing at the time. I mean, uh, it's, I think, you know, when you look at films nowadays, it's almost hard to believe that Hollywood was ever, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a virgin, but uh, they were ever, they were, you know, that, that Hollywood was ever... Um, scared of portraying sex on film you wouldn't get that impression by watching films <laughs> but you know for the longest time i mean uh, the the closest thing to uh, a sexy scene you would see in a film is carrie grant uh, dry kissing uh, a woman for about a second and that mm-hmm. so i mean just frankly in many respects expanded that now part of that is probably because he is a spanish filmmaker and i think just in general you know the the, the norms and standards in, in europe are a lot looser than they are in north america but I do think that that's something that made him stand out from other filmmakers of his ilk who were probably more interested in taking established American films and sort of remaking them uh, just to capitalize on the success of them. Whereas Franco was really much his own, uh, his, his own auteur, really, because, I mean, when you watch a Just Franco film, uh, you know you're watching a Jess Franco film um, because, you know, I mean, especially when you get towards the latter half of his career where he gets very uh, Zoom crazy, uh, although I'm sure you kind of saw that a bit in Count Dracula. Um, but yeah, no, I just, uh, I, when I look at Jess Franco's films, I see films that I could make myself, and we have a lot of similar interests. And so um, it was one of those things where uh, you start with one film and you just keep going and going. And it really is sort of a rabbit hole because, uh, I mean, to this day, I'm still finding out new things about Jess Franco. Like recently, I just discovered he did a film with Mark Hamill, <laughs> of all people, Mark Hamill and Christopher Lee. It's like a World War II film. Um, so that was kind of interesting. There's always some new stuff coming out about the man. Yeah, and uh, I will say, if you are interested in watching some of the films that we're talking about, here, uh, you can find some of them streaming. I know uh, 2B TV has a couple of them, especially a couple of the ones that we're going to talk about today are on there, and uh, as well as The Girl from Rio, which Matthew mentioned earlier, that we're not really going to dive, uh, talk about in a real in-depth perspective. But I do, I will agree with you as far as that, one of the things that uh, you do recognize early in uh, Franco's work when you start to watch it is the is the sensual nature of it is the erotic nature of it and uh, it's it's it is exploitation cinema but it one of the things that's really kind of interesting especially with one of the films in particular we're going to talk about which I think is probably my favorite of the ones that I've watched so far is that it doesn't, it's exploitation cinema, but the, the sensuality, the eroticism is not really exploitative. Um, I think sometimes it can be, but not necessarily 
in uh, in a lot of cases. Yeah, and that's a very good point because, and that's sort of why I gravitate more towards the golden age of his career, like sixty-two to seventy-three, because. I mean, those were some of the films where he had his biggest budgets. Uh, he worked with some of the biggest stars that he had, like, like Claude Kinski and Christopher Lee, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I find, like, after 73, the the sex, uh, some of it gets very pornographic, uh, definitely takes me out of his films, which is a bit of a shame because, I mean, even though the Silver Age and then, of course, the X-rated stuff afterwards isn't what I would necessarily recommend to people if they're looking to get into Franco. But there are a few little gems that are peppered here and there. And um, it's a shame that they don't really get to stand out as much because there are some really fun ideas. Like he made a film called uh, Lorna the Exorcist back in 1974. And it's a film about a, a, a man who makes a deal with the devil uh, um, for a successful career, but the uh, the uh, catch is that when his daughter turns 18, the devil is going to come back to claim her. And of course, the devil is a beautiful woman who spends most of the film in the nude. Uh, and so, <laughs> like, that's a really fun idea for a film. But unfortunately, like, the first 20 minutes, if I'm not mistaken, is basically a, a series of close-ups. And remember, this is the 70s we're talking about, so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, and that's so, you know, and I feel like sometimes people, they start off by watching these films and they completely write them off as an X-rated filmmaker, which is really a shame because, uh, you know, as we're going to get into later, I mean, like he has directed some genuinely uh, terrific films and, uh, you know, hopefully by the end of this, we'll have convinced some people to go out and check them out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, with that said, let's go ahead and... uh... Let, let's go ahead and start talking about some of those films. Uh, where would you like to start? Well, I mean, out of the three here, uh, you know, let's let's go in chronological order. It's always, the be- I always like that best. And I guess that would probably be Venus and Furs. That would be the first one. Um, so yeah, Venus and Furs, 1969, uh, produced by Harry Allen Towers, uh, who is sort of a Roger Corman of, uh, of Europe. Um, so, you know, he, um, he also worked with other directors, but he's probably most famous for his collaboration with Jess Franco. Um, now, um, Venus and Furs is obviously a title of a novel that came out in the late 1800s about masochism. And uh, before anyone gets into this film thinking it's an adaptation of Venus and Furs, uh, they may be a little disappointed because other than the title and a couple of character names, there really is no connection to the novel whatsoever. This was like a typical Harry Allen Towers move where he essentially took a title that was popular at the time and essentially just, you know, it's just a, it's, it's just a name only, but, uh, but um, uh, for those who aren't uh, deterred by that and are still interested in checking out the film, uh, you are in for a real treat. Uh, For me, I really think this is the peak of Franco uh, around this time. Um, he made this film along with, I think, eight or nine other movies that year. So keep that in mind. That's pretty uh, <laughs> impressive. And essentially the story is um, about um, a jazz musician named Jimmy Logan, uh, played by James Darren. Now, um, not to go off track too much, but um, there is an interesting story about the casting here. So um, as you probably gathered, like Venus and Fur's uh, jazz and music is such a big part of the film. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because Jess Franco originally wanted Miles Davis to star as Jimmy Logan. And uh, 
Unfortunately, uh, at the time, uh, the idea, uh, because there would be scenes where Jimmy Logan would be having, uh, would be sleeping with uh, Maria Rahm's character, Wanda Reed, um, at the time, um, uh, you know, the idea of a, of, an, uh, of a black actor having sex with a white actress, that mm-hmm. would really, uh, you know, my, my God, can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, so uh, so they did have to change a few things around. So um, it's sort of an erotic thriller where um, Jimmy Logan's a musician. Um, he is at his house in the beginning of the film, and then he sort of sees something in the ocean. He runs towards it, and um, sure enough, he discovers the dead body of Wanda Reed, uh, played by Maria Rahm, who was uh, the wife of producer Harry Allen Towers. <clears throat> And so uh, from there, basically, the film, uh, we, we learned that Wanda Reed uh, was a character that Jimmy Logan met at a bar in Istanbul. And um, Wanda gets into some really heavy stuff with some of the party guests there. And Jimmy Logan, uh, he witnesses it, but he doesn't really do anything. And then um, without really going, well, I guess we're going to probably talk about spoilers, I guess, <laughs> I guess so. It's in like a 2020 film, so it's for people to see. But but anyway, so um, basically, you know, she comes back uh, from the dead, seemingly, and uh, she gets her revenge on all the people who did her wrong. So in some way, was one of the uh, again talking about inventing genres. This is sort of a supernatural uh, rape and revenge film. Um, so she does get her revenge on everyone, and there's some really really. Um, I mean, obviously the music is a very big part of this, but like there's some, like the scene basically where um, Dennis Price, the uh, the art dealer, uh, where he gets, he's one of the, the first people who gets killed. And uh, the scene where he gets killed, where he basically has a panic attack after seeing all these beautiful shots of her. Um, like that's one of my favorite, favorite scenes. It's just so well done. And the music is just so, um, really infuses that scene with a sense of, uh, Tension and and even some sensuality as well, uh, but anyway, so all this all this to say, uh, she gets her revenge on everyone, but there's a bit of a twist at the end because uh, at the end uh, we once again find Jimmy Logan um, alone on the beach and he sees a body uh, in the ocean and he runs towards it and sure enough it's him he was <laughs> dead all along. <laughs> So when I first saw this movie, um, I loved everything up until the end. Like when I saw the end, I thought, oh, dear God, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was all a dream, you know, but, but, and this is the great thing about, you know, really good films is that the more times you watch them, you start picking up little things. And um, maybe this was just me. Um, I didn't bother like looking this up to see if anyone ever had a definitive interpretation of the film. But um, <clears throat> for me, like it's not only a, a supernatural rape and revenge film, but it's also uh, a Lynchian psychogenic feud mystery. Um, now, if you, and I know you watched Lost Highway, so you might mm. know what I'm talking about. Where, yeah. uh, for those who don't know, like a, <clears throat> a psychogenic feud is a condition where someone who experiences great trauma, you know, for example, like coming home from the war or being a rape victim or something, uh, what they do is because they cannot um, re- relate to this reality, they create a new one in their head where they may or may not become a different person uh, with different values. Uh, they may do things in this reality that they didn't have the guts or the, uh, the courage to do in the real world. Um, so basically, they live in this in their head, and then eventually, reality starts creeping in bit by bit, and then 
the uh, the inevitable happens where the fugue state just dissipates and he's back and then the person is back in reality so the way uh, so as far as how this relates to venus and furs <clears throat> so if you may recall um when uh, when Jimmy uh, when Jimmy meets because uh, I think Jimmy's playing at a club in the beginning of the film and then at some point Wanda pays him a visit mm-hmm. and then he follows her somewhere and we never really see the end of that but I sort of interpreted that as Jimmy Logan was the first person she killed mm-hmm. because because he was there he witnessed everything but he didn't do anything about it so she naturally killed him before she went to all the other guys. But, um, uh, what was I going to say? So, um, so yeah, she, she must have killed him before. And I think the reason why that he follows her this whole time is that he has always harbored this guilt that he never did anything to save her. So he's imagining a scenario in which he's there for her. In fact, in some cases, he even helps her uh, with her revenge. And um, so that's why, so when I saw that in the film, that just raised the film to another level because this is not just some sort of, um, you know, cheap revenge film. I mean, there's also a, a, an underlining psychological uh, malaise that's part of this. And I just mm-hmm. thought that elevated this film and uh, made it even better than uh, I think anyone involved in the film thought it would be. Yeah, this is, I'll, I'll be honest, of the five films that of Franco's that I've watched in preparation for this, this is my favorite. This was, yeah. this was the one that I, I think to a certain extent... I mean, I don't know if it's the most easily accessible. We're getting, I think we might get to that uh, a bit later with one of the other films that we're talking about. But this one, even even though it has that air of mystery in in the same vein of something as uh, David Lynch's Lost Highway, it really is accessible to watch. And that really became clear rewatching it this morning before we were recording this podcast, uh, mm-hmm. immediately fell back into the rhythms of what this film is doing and really, and the, the narrative, the story is, feels very fragmented, but it also moves very well. Part of that, oh, yeah. And part of that is the style. This is, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, this is, this is very much a film noir type detective story in a way i mean in in the same vein of movies like detour i think Mm -hmm. yeah no i i never really thought of it like that but yeah i suppose it could uh, there's definitely some elements of noir uh, especially with the uh, the voiceover and actually now that i'm just thinking about it i don't know why but for some reason i'm getting uh, uh you know sort of visions of um oh jesus what was that film oh my god the I'm gonna kick myself for not knowing this. It was um, oh, a Sunset Boulevard. That's it. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the whole voiceover and mm-hmm. like with the dead body in the water at the beginning. Um, so it wouldn't, and and that's the thing about Jess Franco too, because sometimes I get the impression that people think he's sort of like this outsider artist, or you know, someone who's had no classical training in film. Like it was just someone you gave a camera to, and you were surprised that he came out with a feature film. But no, he is classically trained, and especially in around this period, he would often. Uh, be very uh, referential to art films at the time. Like uh, another film I kind of got a bit of a vibe from while watching Venus and Furs was uh, La Dolce Vita by uh, Felice. 
Yeah. Uh, particularly uh, in the scene where uh, Olga, the fashion photographer, um, when she first meets Wanda and like uh, Paul Muller is like throwing the feathers on them yeah. and you've got, oh, like that felt like a something straight out of a Fellini film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I mean, like he did also make a film in 1968 called Succubus. Um, which uh, in many respects is like a giant in-joke about uh, art house movies, uh, which doesn't necessarily make for the most entertaining watch. But I mean, if you've seen some of these films before, you, you'll you get a kick out of it. So, And also, I forgot to mention this, uh, sorry to get off topic here, but uh, another thing about Jess Franco is that uh, he's very well regarded in his country of Spain. Um, he was actually awarded the Lifetime Achievement uh, Goya Award, which is the equivalent of the Academy Awards. Um, and it, this was presented on TV, so it's not like when David Lynch got an Oscar and it wasn't part right. of the official podcast. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like yeah. he is he is held in high regard. So um, it's not a, so that's why. So uh, when you mention the film noir, it's like yeah, of course, of course, this is a, a film noir in some respects too. So um, yeah, there we go. Another thing that uh, to learn about this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and this and the music adds to that as well. The fact that it's very. The, the fact that the music is very much jazz infused and I mean even the title the the title song Venus and Furs that pops up every uh that pops up when a murder is taking place is mm-hmm. uh is is one of those things where it that's another thing that gives me the uh noir uh sense of sens- sensibility out of this film. I will say you you mentioned Klaus Kinski, uh, he is he is in this. It's really I think this might have been this is probably one of my first times. It's not my first time, but it's one of my first times really seeing him away from Herzog. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean th- those are obviously the collaborations that he's most used, known for. But it's it's fun. It's interesting to see how striking of a personality and how striking of a physical presence he can bring to a movie. Oh, absolutely. And I think we'll talk more about this when we talk about Count Dracula, because he's got a pretty famous role in that. Uh, But yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, much like how Toshiro Mifune is always going to be associated with Akira Kurosawa. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Klaus Kinski is definitely a Herzog uh, actor. But uh, but yeah, like you know, as far as the uh, like uh, European exploitation films go, I mean, this I think uh, it was an unwritten rule that you had to have a five minute cameo by Klaus Kinski. <laughs> to, like, yeah, he he was in a lot of this stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, the, uh, one of the things that really jumps out are his eyes. His eyes are so expressive and round, and uh, you know, it's, and and it wasn't un, uh, uncommon for him to sometimes change the dialogue uh, to, if anything, like because most actors will want more words, but he would actually like cut out a lot of his dialogue just to primarily be a physical actor in these types of films. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, obviously like Klaus Kinsey was very hot at the time. So having him in the film certainly, uh, raised the level, uh, um, the level of awareness that people might not have had about the movie. Um, but yeah, he's, he's terrific. I mean, um, again, um, this film is pretty much sort of, um, a who's who of all the famous actors that, uh, Franco was working with at the time. Uh, I mean, we talked about Maria Rome, we talked about uh, Klaus Kinski, uh, but, you know, people like Dennis Price, Paul Muller, these are character actors who would appear in a lot of his work, uh, mm-hmm. and include 
films that we're going to talk about a little later. Um, but no, I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy you enjoyed it. And uh, and again, I mean, most people that I show the film to really get a kick out of it. Um, some are kind of thrown by the ending, but I mean, yeah. um, but on the other hand, I mean, I do think there's a lot to, to get out of this. Uh, another thing I really like uh, about this movie and about just Franco films in general are the locations. Um, because that's the thing, you know, when you watch American or Canadian films, you know, sometimes the locations just sort of bleed into one because, you know, you kind of live there. So it's not as exotic as, let's say, uh, you know, a temple in Istanbul might be. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that that lends a lot of the charm of these movies, uh, the fact that they're shot on location, like these aren't sets. And um, it's, it's funny because uh, I think... I think there's a shot of uh, in the film when Jimmy Logan is chasing Wanda Reed, like they're chasing, he's chasing her down this sort of, um, it's, it's, it's outside. It's this little hallway with um, pillars on either side. And I think that is a, that location has been used in probably a couple dozen of Jess Franco's movies because he does have a tendency to shoot at the same place again and again. Um, so um, another thing I wanted to mention too about Jess Franco and especially about this film is that you know, one of the ways that Jess Franco, uh, one of the reasons why um, he's credited with directing so many movies is because um, sometimes his films would often get released uh, in different cuts and different titles. Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes, so Venus and Furs, like uh, in Europe, I believe it's known as Paradoxum or, um, oh, I think that might be something like that. Yeah. Uh, and there are a couple of different cuts that are circulating around. But another thing he would also do is kind of remake the same film a few times. So, for example, uh, Venus and Furs, in many respects, <clears throat> uh, served as the basis for a remake he would make the year later uh, called She Killed in Ecstasy, which uh, uses the same cast as uh, Vampiro's Lesbos. And I believe it, was, it might have been shot at the same time as that film. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a Jess Franco trademark where... Um, sometimes if you're going to buy one of his films, you may want to look and see if there are uh, alternate or better versions. Um, so that's sort of how he kind of gets up to 173. Yeah. It's yeah. And, and, uh, the, the thing that I really like about this one is I, there is the, the narration. I, I wasn't admittedly, I, I didn't think much of the performances the first time I saw it I thought you know they're they're fine for what the movie is but the story t- the visual storytelling is ultimately what carries it and I still think that's the the fact but the second time watching it I I appreciated the way this narration uh helps drive the story a bit more and and the performances really um I I think they they do serve in the a particular purpose and the film as far as um putting you in this sense of in this sort of sense of film noir where it's in mystery and you know having um having the main character be somebody who is very sort of off balance by what he's experiencing yeah, absolutely. And um, again, it almost makes me want to watch the film again now, uh, thinking about uh, the film noir connotations. Um, but yeah, and I also think uh, given that this is a bit of a surreal film as well, I do think it kind of helps a bit having that narration ground the film in, in a kind of reality that people can relate to. 
Um, but yeah, um, it's, uh, I'm trying to think if there's something else I wanted to mention about this film, but, um, but yeah, I think we, oh, uh, yeah, there, there is one thing. So you probably noticed that there was a lot of footage of, uh, Carnival mm-hmm. from Rio. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so if you watch a lot of uh, his films, particularly from 68 to 69, I believe that one of them, he shot one of the films that he made. I think it was a women in prison film called 99 women. And uh, he, uh, I think uh, he just shot like a bunch of uh, stock footage of the of the um, carnival. And I think uh, it, this the same footage actually showed up in a few of his films around this period. So it kind of made me smile when I saw it because it uh, you could tell that it's kind of being used to pad out the film a little bit, <laughs> which it didn't really need to be honest. But anyway, uh, but yeah, I just thought that was funny. So in case you were wondering, yeah, that's like stock footage he's used from other movies. Yeah, and Venus and Furs is available on Tubi, by the way. Uh, for those of you who are listening, um, it is it is well is well worth a watch. It's eighty six minutes. It's really quick. It it doesn't. One of the things that uh, I appreciate about Franco watching his films is he doesn't waste a moment when it comes to his storytelling. He's a very economical storyteller. And uh, that's that's something that's very uh, clear in at least at least the three films that we're going to discuss as well as as well as others. Yeah, uh, no, definitely. And I mean, I do think some of that also is uh, the fact that, you know, when you're shooting eight or nine films a year, you uh, you, you can't afford the luxury of uh, of a Stanley Kubrick style production <laughs> where you can do six takes. Yeah. <laughs> but um but again, I, I do think that gives his films a sense of urgency, um, which is another charm of the movie too. And uh, and again, that's something that uh, and maybe you can realize, uh, relate to this too, because I know your I mean your background as a musician, but I'm sure you know um, I, I'm sure you can relate to the fact that you know sometimes you're under a deadline or you may not have all the tools or the resources that maybe working in Hollywood might have. And so I feel like as a filmmaker, I can relate to that. And that's, you know, when I, like, I loved Star Wars and stuff like that, but I mean, you know, like I've said, I think before, like if I tried to make Star Wars, that my attempt at making Star Wars would make Turkish Star Wars seem like Star Wars. (laughs) Whereas when I look at Jess Franco's films and I'm not, and this isn't a bad thing either. I'm not saying like I'm settling for the the Franco aesthetic because I can't achieve the Star Wars aesthetic. Uh, It's an aesthetic that's worth the, you know, talking about, mm-hmm. but I mean, I feel like, and I feel like this is probably why a lot of DIY uh, filmmakers who have an interest in horror and, I guess, eroticism, uh, kind of relate to, or is kind of are kind of drawn to him because, again, like he's one of the few filmmakers who not only, well, he's a filmmaker who sort of spearheaded the movement, but not only that, but had a career that lasted way in, up until his death in 2013. So he proved that, you know, this successful formula and if done properly you could not only you know make your budget back but you can also you know hopefully entertain and maybe even enlighten some audiences in the process yeah it, that does that, that is definitely true about his uh work i mean even even something that feels more exploitative or just very uh kind of kind of loopy i mean girl from rio i i will admit it's like that that movie is just completely completely bonkers in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, in in some ways for me that I enjoyed, in other ways where I wasn't really as much of a fan of, but I love that I love that it takes the chances that it takes. 
and it it it's very much its own thing and it's one of those things where i uh, you you always have to appreciate a filmmaker and, and one of the things that's interesting about franco is that you really do sort of you know we're we're going to talk about his horror in in a certain degree where it's like it's funny because this is more of a film noir very much more of a uh genre type film where it's like when we talk about his horror like there's something very classical about his his horror films and and about movies that could like you said they could sort of fit in the universal vein or in Val Luton's uh style of filmmaking or I mean even hammers and uh that that's uh, actually gonna be you're absolutely important. right. And that's going to be an important part when we get to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, uh, I guess why we might as well start to jump onto that then. So I, I know the next film, what we're going to talk about <clears throat> is Count Dracula from uh, from 1970. Um, so if you want, I can maybe just give a bit of background before we get into it. So <clears throat> um, this was the, uh, the last film he made for producer Harry Allen Towers. And in many respects, this was sort of a watershed film for him because uh, you could tell right away uh, going into this movie uh, that the filmmaking style is a lot more personal and a lot more handheld than uh, some of the other uh, work that he did in other films. Um, and you could sort of tell that he was sort of... Um, because, again, like uh, um, around this time, he started doing a lot of uh, experiments in film. Uh, and, I mean, one film, unfortunately, we're not going to talk about, but um, um, a movie he made called The Bare-Breasted Countess, uh, which, I, which, I call, which I call basically, um, the best way to describe that would be if Terrence Malick ever made a softcore lesbian vampire film. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> what that would feel like. Um, but uh, so which anyway, like a style like that, it's so different from, let's say, something like Venus and Furs. So you do kind of see it a little bit with Count Dracula, like right in the opening few shots. I mean, there's, uh, you know, he does get a little zoom crazy, uh, which would become his trademark with other movies. Uh, but yeah, so this was the last film for Harry Allen Towers. Uh, many of the, well, pretty much the entire cast, and that's made up of just Franco regulars. So it's sort of like a swan song for this era of the, the of his work. Mm -hmm. uh, also, one of the first films to star uh, Soledad Miranda, who uh, I believe she plays—is it Lucy or um, she plays? Well, she's one of the main characters, and uh, Soledad Miranda obviously is most famous for *Vampire of Lesbos*, which we'll talk about a little later. But um, but yeah, this was one of her first films, and she sort of became a muse for Jess Franco. Uh, she starred in about six of his erotic thrillers, all of which were shot in 1970. Uh, and, uh, Fortunately, uh, she had a car accident and passed away in that, and she was really young. And um, there were a lot of people that were really uh, smitten by her, including Christopher Lee, uh, who uh, has gone on record as saying Soledad was one of his favorite uh, performers to work with, and that she really uh, threw herself into the character. Um, but yeah, and uh, probably the best known, uh, what this film is probably best known as being is one of the more uh, faithful adaptations of the, the original novel by Bram Stoker. Uh, in fact, I cannot, you know, I feel like you could tell who's read the novel by their reaction to the movie because um, literally, actually, one of my friends on Facebook said, uh, oh, uh, I didn't realize uh, they made a Dracula porn because he's got his 70s uh, stash. 
And I had to explain to him, it's like, well, no, no, if you read the original novel, he does sort of start off old and then gradually gets younger, uh, to which my friend responded. So basically it's uh, Benjamin Button, <laughs> which is, I guess, one way to look at it. Um, so, yeah, so that's uh, – and, um, so yeah, Christopher Lee uh, was also very instrumental in this movie because he wasn't very happy about the Hammer films he was doing. He felt that they really uh, went – far, far away from the source material, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is true, uh, right with the first film that they did. Um, but, uh, and also that, you know, um, Count Dracula really almost just became this um, grunting beast, more as opposed to the eloquent speaker that he is. And so that's why one of my favorite scenes in Count Dracula uh, was a scene that I loved reading in the novel. And we finally got to see it on the big screen where um, uh, Dracula gives the speech about the history of his people and, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> yeah, basically the history of his people and uh, why he lays claim to the castle that he has. And it's really such a stirring moment. Like, you could tell, like, Christopher Lee really took this seriously because he, he loved the book Dracula. And actually, interesting enough, on one of the DVD releases of Count Dracula, one of the extras is actually Christopher Lee reading the entire novel. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is a lot of fun. You could probably find that on YouTube. I imagine someone mm-hmm. probably put that there um but yeah so it's it's a very faithful adaptation uh, i would say at least the the first 30 minutes it's almost beat by beat uh, what you see uh or what you read in the novel i mean there are a few things that change i mean there are, there is a scene i think towards the end where some of the characters are in the room with all these he- animal heads on the wall and then they sort of like turn towards him and turn towards them they start making sounds and i feel like that scene actually predates the evil dead <laughs> uh remember that with the uh, the deer yeah. and all that yeah. so, so that's that's something that uh so anyway i mean uh, i i don't want to i don't want to um talk too much i mean let's we'll get into a little back and forth but but yeah i mean that's basically it i mean count dracula last film for harry allen towers first film with soledad miranda and uh you know all in all um i have to say i mean for the record my favorite dracula film is uh nosferatu uh just mm-hmm. because no there has never been a Dracula like Count Orlock, yeah. but um, I find that I actually prefer uh, this version of Dracula over the Todd Browning one, which, to be honest, I always thought was a little too dry. I mean, I love mm-hmm. Bela Lugosi, but you know, between the lack of a score and the very stagey, um, the way the scenes are staged, and you know, it's very sort of, it's almost like you're watching a play. Yeah. Um, I feel like this film's a lot more cinematic. Um, and again, the locations are just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also, you know, you do for fans of the novel who've always wanted to, who, whoever wanted to see some of their favorite scenes and actually including, uh, the scene where Dracula's, um, uh, delivering Jonathan Harker to the castle and they're sort of ambushed by wolves. And like, he gets out of the carriage and confronts them. I don't think you've ever really seen that in a Dracula film that I can yeah. think of it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, what did you think of this? I, I really enjoyed this and it's, it was because horror, horror of Dracula, the Terrence Fisher, uh, hammer movie is one of, I, I'm with you. Nosferatu is my favorite, uh, version of the Dracula story, uh, thematically at least. And, mm-hmm. uh, but horror of Dracula has always been, uh, right up there as well. And a big part of that is the, uh, dynamic between Christopher Lee and uh, Peter Cushing is Van Helsing. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but one of the things that was so interesting to me about this, and 
it's funny because I think he still had a couple more performances for Hammer as Dracula and the, after this, if I recall. Um, oh, yes, he did. But uh, this, this, this does feel very much like Christopher Lee sort of saying everything he's wa- he had wanted to say he had left to really say about the character in this movie. It it kind of reminds me of uh it kind of remi- it kind of remind me of Logan, actually. Uh the James Mangold oh, okay. uh, that sort of retired Hugh Jackman's uh version of Wolverine. And uh it it does feel very and I think part of it is the part of that was the kind of shock of seeing Dracula portrayed genuinely as an old man and then mm-hmm. seeing the way the character uh regains his youth and yeah the big Benjamin Button does the comparison does make a lot of sense but yeah I mean I I thought about this as like old man Dracula to a certain extent <laughs> um but no that's I, ri- I'm really glad we had this conversation today because, like, <laughs> between the Venus and Furs being like a film noir and Count Dracula being Old Man Logan, I, I honestly <laughs> want to rewatch these films now with the, the, these thoughts in mind. But yeah, that's perfect because yeah, you could sort of tell because yeah, he did do a few more Hammer films. I think the most famous one was Dracula AD 1972, where he gets funky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but um, but yeah, definitely sort of feels like um, this is sort of a swan song for him playing this character, and it's 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 almost a shame that he did do other Draculas after this because this would have been a great way to kind of end uh, time with that character. But yeah, he was definitely, and that's one of the reasons why he signed on to do the film because right from the get go, it was made very clear that they want to do an authentic take on the novel that hadn't really been done at that time and um so yeah i mean he was very much involved with the writing and um and you could tell i mean like the character of dracula is presented with a certain um certain sense of class that um and uh indeed that he may not add uh including in some of the hammer films but um but no i, I really enjoyed this and uh, i mean uh, it was shot in four three like the original dracula so i appreciated that even though this was 1970 and everyone was uh cinema scope crazy at the time really yeah. enjoyed in the four by three and in some cases um you know i was kind of joking about his uh his overuse of the zoom but uh in a four by three uh ratio like um especially like in moments of tension uh when he does zoom in i actually find the four by three framing uh, adds a sense of um claustrophobia to the um some of those shots and uh makes them a little more tense and unnerving uh, than they might have otherwise been had they been shot 16 by 9 um, so, yeah, that's just like a filmmaker tidbit that I kind of uh, picked up on. But um, also, um, <clears throat> I don't know if you're aware of this guy, but um, it, the film was actually uh, – and talk about learning new things all the time. I just learned that this film was edited by uh, Bruno Mattai, who is sort of like the Italian Ed Wood. <laughs> uh, so and he oh, – that's – oh, my God. Now that I'm just thinking that would be a podcast in itself <laughs> talking about Bruno Mattai. But uh, that was kind of interesting to see his name on there. Um, was there anything about the film that in particular that, uh, jumped out at you as far as certain themes or. So I, I really like the atmosphere in it. Um, I love the music in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. that, that's, you know, me as a musician, it's like, and me as a soundtrack buff, that's always going to get me. And, and that's one of the things that I appreciate about, um, 
the Franco films that I did see is that the the music is always really is really interesting, even if I'm even if I'm not a huge fan of it, like like Venus and Furs, I did love the music. And it's like Count Dracula, I love the music in this as well. But I mean, even the ones where it's like, I'm not quite sure even what to do, what to sort of make of the music. It's like, there's there's something to be said for that as well because of it's it being such a bizarre choice and uh, such such an interesting choice. And... Uh, I didn't get a chance to rewatch this one before um before we were talking today, but uh I I will say it's like one of the things that did stand out to me when I watched it last in October, uh I can't say last month because it's now December. Um I I like the way that uh Van Helsing and Renfield are brought into this story. Mm, yes. And uh, I think there's there's a nice degree of suspense to this. Oh, I think so too. And um, and again, I mean, sometimes it's hard for you know because obviously the 1931 Dracula is synonymous, like it's the film for so many people. So <clears throat> you know, sometimes you can't help but find yourself comparing it to that movie. Um, but uh, but again, I think the fact that this was shot in Europe and uh, the on you know again that this wasn't uh, these weren't sets like let's say the Todd Browning film. So mm -hmm. I, I do shooting on location really adds so much to it. I mean, like the Carpathian uh, landscape that uh, Arthur travels to get to Count Dracula. Like finding this film particularly, it really does kind of feel like you're there because every time I've seen this in other films, it, it was either too too stylish, like let's say in the original Nosferatu, to really be able to relate to the, the location. Uh, but that was something that kind of jumped out at me, was the, the beautiful locations, the castle especially. Um, again, that was something that he really did very well. And uh, I think this might actually be one of those rare films where we don't see that uh, hallway with the pillars like we did in Venus. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, again, I would definitely recommend this. I mean, it is uh, streaming on Tubi, uh, or if you don't want to watch it with the ads, I think Amazon Prime has it. Um, yeah, but it, right. um, but I mean, they did. But uh, I think with Severin Films, they put it out on Blu-ray and DVD. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things that's really interesting is that the Blu-ray comes with this uh, experimental documentary about the making of Count Dracula. And uh, it's basically a lot of, it's almost like a fly on the wall where we see Franco interact with Christopher Lee, which I thought was really fascinating because I love getting a, you know, a behind the curtain look at filmmaking. Um, and so that's, that's a really interesting film. So if anyone's, you know, if anyone wants to add their library, which I would recommend, I mean, this is one of those films where I, I can confidently say that it's a safe blind buy because mm. it's, at the very least it's Dracula. So, you know, <laughs> You know the story, so at the very least, it's not going to come as a surprise. But I do think people are going to be particularly pleased when they see this because um, it is certainly one of the more – I, I don't know if it's the most faithful because I think the angry video game nerd of all people did a, did a video on Dracula films. And I think this one scored pretty high as far as faithfulness goes. But I think there are a couple other ones that, that do go that extra mile. I think one of them was um, a TV series that aired up on TV. Hmm. Yeah, and I would say of the certainly of the uh, five movies that I saw in preparation for this episode, I would say I would say this is probably the most accessible. And I think oh. part of that is because of the familiarity 
the familiarity of the Dracula story, but also it's just the the way that Franco presents the story and the way that you have Christopher Lee, who's so well-known in the role. I, I do think those elements help as well, on top of it just being a very uh, strong uh, version of the Dracula story. Absolutely. And uh, one thing I, I think we forgot to talk about was uh, Klaus Kinski. Um, so he's in this, and he plays Renfield, and um, it's uh, and I was I was mentioning this earlier. I think like originally this role had a lot more dialogue, whereas right now, as it stands now, it's pretty much a silent role where it's it's more it's more physical. Mm-hmm. And I think that Klaus Kinski had insisted on because he's he wasn't too big on dialogue. He'd rather he'd rather just explore it through uh, um, himself. And uh, you know, there's a scene where he's in his uh, padded cell and like he digs up some flies in his uh, toilet. Uh, and uh, knowing Klaus Kinski, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually did put his hand through <laughs> the flies because he strikes me as that kind of actor. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, how did you find him in comparison to other portrayals of Renfield? No, I, I, I mean, a, a big part of it is just the the natural, the natural charisma that Klaus Kinski has. I mean, he's he's automatically going to be such an interesting performer in a role like that because of the physical presence that he brings to a role because of like you said that that very go for broke attitude of i'm going to literally put my hand in this in in a toilet to you know get at flies and uh (laughs) you know i i think that that definitely helps make him stand out i'm not quite sure i'm not quite sure if i would say it's my I'm not sure if I would say it's my top version of Renfield or that type of character. I mean, I it's been a while since I've seen the uh, Todd Browning film, um, and I, but if I'm not, I haven't seen if, and I haven't seen Bram Stoker's Dracula in forever either. But right, but if I'm not mistaken, in the Todd Browning film, <clears throat> and I think in a few of them too, don't they tend to combine the character of Renfield and Jonathan Harker? Uh, I'm not sure about the Todd Browning film. Now I do know I I know um I I think my favorite rendering of the characters is uh Knock in Nosferatu. Oh yeah. Because it is such a it's and it the fact of the matter is there's no dialogue and he has to do it all with his face and all with his uh physical motions and it's just being such a purely um physical performance it's that that stands out more than anything Mm. well um yeah again i mean like i i really dug this film and i think like you said i think it um uh, i mean it's definitely the most accessible out of all the films uh having said that i mean I mean, I guess as far as availability goes, it's probably the easiest to get your hands on because, like you said, it is on Tubi. I don't necessarily know if it's if, if it's the. I mean, it's definitely a better entry point to Jess Franco's work than, let's say, a film like Two Female Spies with Flowered Panties, which is a <laughs> by the way. Uh, so it's probably a more accessible entry than something like that. But having said that, I mean, this is a film that kind of divides Franco fans because there are some people who don't like the fact that he abandoned the sensuality of his earlier work uh, because some people kind of feel that this is more of a mainstream film for him, which I suppose it is given this, mm-hmm. the, because up until now, like he was 
making adaptations of works by the Marquis de Sade. So Bram Stoker's a much different uh, character. Than... <laughs> and um, and if, if, if nothing else, I think films like this, because every once in a while, Franco got tossed a bone where he was given a relatively big budget. Now, please keep in mind, big budget in Europe means different. <laughs> it means oh, something yeah. different. Yeah. So I just want people to know, like, because some people might sort of snark when they think of like Count Dracula being a bigger budget film, but but it was, and it's proof that you know it, you know, when he was given the keys to the kingdom, he could turn out uh, a fairly um, normal movie, um, and uh, and I think that's what this is. I mean, there are a few of his little quirks uh, here and there, but I do think, like, certainly in comparison to the other two films that we're going to talk about, um, it's definitely probably most mainstream and probably something that you know the average person could get into but i would certainly recommend maybe starting with uh, the awful dr orloff uh, from 1962 which is a film that combines elements of uh, eyes without a face with frankenstein and the cabinet of dr caligari i feel like that's a more imaginative film but again you know um you have to pay i think it's the blu-ray for awful dr orloff is 30 bucks versus watching count dracula for free so <laughs> i think that would probably be a better thing for most people but um but yeah i mean i enjoyed it um you know i i don't i don't nearly dislike it as much as some other people do in fact it's actually one of my favorites of his mm-hmm. um it may be a tiny bit on the dry side but maybe that's Maybe that's the thing about adapting a book too faithfully is that scenes that might seem enticing when you read them don't necessarily make the translation to the big screen. Yeah. But I mean, all in all, um, definitely one of the uh, the elite twelve films that I would recommend. Yeah, and for anyone to get into the. And you and you mentioned the fact that some people feel like this just doesn't really have that sensuality that Franco. Um, was known for, and that's part of the reason why they don't necessarily look at it as highly as some of his other films. It's like, it, it's funny because of the fact that the first Franco film that I watched what, which is one that we're not necessarily going to talk about, because, but it's uh, The Bloody Judge, which is another Christopher Lee movie, and that one does, and I watched that on Prime, I don't think it's available anymore, on Prime, but um, that one is one that has a bit of the that sensuality and a bit of that exploitation uh, feel to it compared to something like Count Dracula. Now, I do think Count Dracula is a better movie and probably, you know, Blade Judge was a decent introduction to him, but, I mean, Count Dracula was very much a more interesting watch overall. <laughs> For sure, and I mean, uh, and again, like it's it's fairly well made too. I mean, uh, I think they're now. I don't know if I'm confusing this film with another one of his films, but I believe at the end of Count Dracula, there's a scene where they push a big boulder onto um, onto some folks. Uh, I, I I think I'm. I don't know if I'm confusing with uh, another movie he did, but there is a, there is a scene where I think they push a boulder and. And you could so tell that it's like a paper mache boulder. <laughs> like, I think it bounces a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's little things like that. But, I mean, I find, like, you know, you know that, that's something else you'll find about Franco. Like, if you do decide to go down the rabbit hole and discover some of his more experimental stuff is that, you know, um, <clears throat> this is a person who doesn't waste a single uh, frame of film. Like, even if... Uh, 
shots are out of focus, if mm. the intent is there, I find he'll still include it in the movie, which was something that took some getting used to, because again, if you grow up on a diet of Hollywood films, I mean, you the idea of something being out of focus is just a huge faux pas. You don't do that. Right. But I think that that kind of adds a little bit to his films. I mean, it kind of gives it a little bit of a, you know, sort of a little grungy DIY feel to it. I mean, there's certain thoughts in my movies that, you know, for better or for worse, I had to hide certain things because you would see a light here or something like that. So, again, I think that's something as an independent filmmaker I can relate to. And I think a lot of people can when they watch it. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, not really wasting a shot and uh, sort of sort of taking every moment as it as it goes, let's go ahead and transition to the third film that we're going to talk about. Now, this even if you haven't watched this film, even if you haven't aren't necessarily familiar with Franco, chances are if you've been at a video store that has a pretty deep um, collection of world cinema, of exploitation cinema, chances are you'll recognize this title. So what what is the third film for our uh, list? Sure. Well, um, this is uh, a film that um, I think... Uh... I think this is the film that he's really known for. I would say more than else. And I feel like a lot of that soundtrack, but we'll get into that a little later. But yes, the film Heroes Lesbos, and uh, which I don't think I need to translate what that means. I think people, yeah. uh, so this was a film made in 1970, along with like six or seven others, um, so, which is really remarkable when you consider he was pumping out all these uh, really top-notch uh, films. But um, so yeah, this is um, so this is a very interesting film and kind of a personal one for me too. Um, so we uh, we might uh, this might go a little long, but uh, you know feel free to hear me in the right direction if I'm if I'm talking to if I'm babbling too much. But um, so yeah, so Vampiros Lesbos is a um, the best way to describe it would be almost a companion film to Count Dracula. In fact, it's uh, kind of fun to watch it right after Count Dracula because even though it's not really a sequel, there are references made to Dracula. And because Soledad Miranda starred in Count Dracula as well, it's, you know, you could almost, it's for, you know, just for shifting and giggles, it's kind of like a fun quasi-sequel. But basically, um, it is an inversion of the Dracula mythos. So, for example, like, instead of Dracula being a man, uh, she's a woman. Her name's Countess Nadine. Um, for, uh, instead of the film being shot in shadow and fog and, you know, low lighting, it's shot out in the daytime with bright sunny skies, uh, beaches, you know, instead of uh, seeing shots of uh, wolves, for example, ambushing people, you'll see shots of kites in the sky and scorpions and uh, flies and whatnot. So it's, it's really a subversion of that, which I'm very much into subversive art. I like when people take classic themes and sort of flip them on their heads. And that was something that immediately jumped out to me when I watched this movie. Um, the story uh, is basically about a couple named uh, Omar and Linda. Uh, one night they're at a nightclub um, taking in uh, the sights and sounds. And uh, sure enough, they, uh, they go to a club where the Countess Nadine is performing. And this sort of uh, awakens uh, a sensuality in Linda that 
is that we get the impression that was never there to begin with. Uh, you know, we, when we see the couple together, you know, they're very, uh, they have very dry and bland and uninteresting sex. Uh, they have a very sterile relationship where they sit around saying very sterile things to each other. Uh, but when she meets Nadine and she, uh, she becomes uh, enraptured by her, and uh, Linda, as it turns out, much like Jonathan Harker, she works for Simpson and Simpson, um, a uh, broker. Um, what would you call that? A realty brokerage, mm-hmm. and uh, is sent out to visit the Countess Nadine because uh, Nadine is uh, looking to move again, much like Dracula, looking to move into the city. And um, and yeah, so when she she arrives there, um, they go skinny dipping as you do, and uh, you know they have a good time. And then eventually, you know, um, Nadine. Um, essentially um, gets Linda under her power and uh, makes Linda become her sort of uh, disciple. And then uh, it becomes uh, incumbent uh, upon uh, uh, Omar to, to go on this crusade to, uh, to save his wife and bring her back to, uh, to normalcy, which, as the film promotes, is sort of this heteronormative uh, sexuality. Now, uh, I want to get into the subtext because this is really what makes the film stand out for me. And But uh, before I do, I do want to stress the importance of subtext. Now, you know, as we're starting to learn in society, sometimes it's not necessarily the words or the actions that the words you say or the actions you do, but sort of the in, um, it doesn't really matter what you say, because sometimes there's an intent that becomes apparent that you may or may not have um wanted uh, to be there for example um i was once in a, a movie a long long time ago called uh, the return uh where i played a zombie or i played a boy running from home and then i was attacked by two zombies and i become a zombie now that you know sounds like a fun idea in itself but uh when the director was doing auditions uh as it turned out the two best people for the roles uh were two uh, uh two black actors now as you could probably imagine with uh, black zombies attacking this poor white boy. You know, the film took on a subtext that the director had no intention of. It sort of became this sort of a racial thing. And, um, you know, some people even thought it was a little racist. But, I mean, like, I read the original script and I know there was no intent. It just ended up that way because of the casting. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, I just want that to be clear that, you know, I'm, I am going to say a bunch of things about this movie that just Franco himself may not have, had any intent like this might not have been his intention for all i know like uh you know franco was not really a misogynist i mean uh, he gave women some of the best roles of their careers i mean he's always very pro females which is why which is kind of odd that this film has that sort of subtext but so be it so basically uh, as i mentioned like the story of the film is about how um omar has to sort of because you know linda has discovered that she is a lesbian and, uh, you know, she wants to sort of pursue this life with Nadine, but, you know, Omar takes it upon himself to try and save his wife and bring her back to, you know, the heteronormative uh, lifestyle. Now, this was a film that was very personal for me. Now, um, not because uh, my wife uh, met a lesbian vampire and (laughs) and became one herself, but uh, the the idea of... um, now, uh, at the risk of TMI, I, I'm not going to go into too many details about, you know, the sexuality part, but, um, you know, around 2007, 2008, uh, there were certain aspects of my sexuality that were becoming more and more apparent, and I couldn't deny. And so I sort of uh, came out of the closet a little bit and sort of told people about my real sexuality. 
And, you know, for every um, one or two family members or friends that supported me, there were many others who either disowned me completely or felt the need to have to save me and bring me back to what it considered normal. And so uh, when I saw this in Vampiros Lesbos, that really hit me. And so uh, in 2008, I did uh, one of the things that uh, you should never do, and that is remake a classic and beloved horror movie. <laughs> and so and in many respects, that was what kind of kicked off my career, because obviously, if you're going to remake one of the most beloved films, you're going to get attention. Um, and so my version of the film, so this is interesting. So, uh, my version of the film was shot entirely in still images like, uh, La Jetée, for example, that was a sort of style I was doing at the time with still images. I was working with a photographer and, um, yeah, we had a lot of fun making these movies. And so my version is like 20 minutes short. And the best way to describe it would be sort of like a Cliff's Notes version of Vampiros Lesbos, where, Let's say if you watched the feature film and didn't get what the movie was about, if you were to watch my short, there would be no doubt what the movie's about. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was very interesting because when I would tour with that film on this festival circuit and talk to people, you know, again, much like the original Vampiros Lesbos, <clears throat> you know, some people were like, well, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure I get it. But when I would explain and show how it tied in with the original uh, people, you know, they, they respected what I did with my film and, um, you know, it, it went on to sort of, uh, touch a lot of people. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I think I kind of got off track a little bit, but, but long story short, I mean, Vampiros Lesbos, uh, definitely one of the, uh, one of the seminal films of his career. Uh, I wouldn't personally say it's necessarily his best. Um, and this is, I wouldn't necessarily say it's his best person because it's coming in a, it's coming at a time where he made Venus at Furs, mm -hmm. uh, Count Dracula, Eugenie de Sade, which is his version of Lolita. So, I mean, like all these hits after one after the other, I mean, this film isn't entirely, I feel like this is a film that's more interesting conceptually than it may be actually. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to feel. So I, I'm going to let you talk for a bit. No. And I, I think that's, I, I think that's actually that that's a very fair point. I mean, I wouldn't I would say like we're I would say relatively speaking, in my personal opinion at least. Now, granted, I think all of these movies are good movies and you know, very good movies and well worth watching. I would say Venus and Furs is probably my top choice, and then Count Dracula is up there as well, and then this is third. Um yeah. relatively speaking. Um, no, it's, it's funny. I, I was going back into our, uh, Facebook messenger be, to see what I are back and forth as we were, uh, as I was watching this for the first time. And, uh, one of the things I said early on was, wow, he, he's really shooting his shot here as far as exploitation in, in the beginning of the movie. And, uh, you, you respond, he never wastes a moment. And, that that's what makes me that's what really made me uh say out loud that that's one of the things that I really appreciate about him is that he really doesn't waste a moment of his films and you know as as much as i admire a filmmaker like tarkovsky it's like even i can acknowledge that a filmmaker like him i stalker's my one of my favorite films of all time, but I completely understand people not getting into it because of how much, uh, 
how how languid and how uh, very slowly paced that movie is. I completely respect that. And it's like, I get that for some people, it just doesn't, they just kind of bounce off of that. And it's like, that's, that is one of the things that I like about Franco as a filmmaker is that he doesn't feel the need to, um, he, he doesn't feel the need to, you know, just stretch things out, uh, for the sake of, um, fitting basically everything in the kitchen sink in there. He can get that in a shorter amount of time. Absolutely. And, um, one of the things I think you might have mentioned this too when we were talking on Facebook. Uh, one of my favorite things about Jess Franco films are his club scenes mm-hmm. because uh, particularly if you get to um, oh, there's a film that he made called The Erotic Rife of Frankenstein, and uh, some of the extras in that movie look like they're Xanaxed out of their minds. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but like, uh, but yeah, but sometimes like uh, I find like in Vampiros Lesbos, like in those club scenes, like you see some people who would. In real life, they would probably never be at a club like that. It's just, right. it feels like, but that's what I love about these films because, like, you know, I find with um, North American movies, like, even the extras look like they just walked off a set of a Parasuco jeans commercial, you know? <laughs> Whereas in European films, not just exploitation, but even like the artier films as well, um, like a Tarkovsky, for example, like, you know, if you look at those extras, they look like real people, you know, mm-hmm. like that. Are not actors. Those are people that they probably just got off the street and said, "Hey, do you want to watch a a nude show for about ten minutes while we film this?" Um, so, uh, so yeah, I really. Uh, so I'm glad you kind of got a kick out of that because that's it's always fun to watch who's in those clubs. Yeah, the, yeah. My exact words were, "Boy, the people in these clubs seem so engaged." And, uh, <laughs> but but that's but that's one of the things that's so great about because of the fact that it really elevates the surreal atmosphere in these films and Venus and furs is kind of the same way where it, it really gives it a, it gives it a singular feel to these films that you just don't really see in that type of film often. And that's, that's one of the things that I really like about um, the way his, uh, the way his storytelling operates. Yeah, I mean, this was definitely one of his more uh, experimental ones. Like, he would go even further than this. Like, this has a fairly linear story, but um, there are certain other movies that he would make a little after this that really go off the rails and go into that territory where it's really more about the uh, feelings and emotions being conveyed than than about any kind of narrative story. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, and again, uh, I just, cause I was looking at my notes here that I made for the film, but <clears throat> one of the things too, um, also is that, uh, keeping up with the whole subversion is that in this film, uh, Renfield's uh, a woman, uh, her name's, uh, Agra. And, um, you know, you still have like the Dr. Seward character and the sort of Van Helsing type character, which I guess in this case is, um, Omar. Um, also something kind of interesting too, is that, uh, Countess Nadine has a sidekick named Morpho. Uh, now this is, uh, again, Jess Franco is a very self-referential filmmaker and, uh, Morpho is the, is this go-to character that appears in a lot of his movies actually. And it sort of started with the, the big bang of the Franco verse, uh, the awful Dr. Orloff, which is about like Morpho is sort of like a Frankenstein type monster. Whereas, you know, here, and, uh, and he sort of plays a, s- a similar type of role. 
So, um, so yeah, I mean, again, it is, and, and that's kind of rewarding, especially if you do try to watch his films in chronological order, uh, because you sort of see the development of a lot of his um, mm-hmm. uh, idiosyncrasies, uh, such as, you know, naming sidekick characters, Morpho. Um, you know, there's always a character named Dr. Tanner, for example. That's sort of a, a goat. Uh, that's something you'll see in some of his other movies. Um, and it was also kind of interesting, just going back, uh, talking about the subtext there, um, you know, there's a scene at the beginning where Linda's visiting her psychiatrist and she's sort of telling him the story of mm-hmm. Countess Dean. And then you sort of, uh, it's a really great shot too, because like it's an over the shoulder shot and you see the doctor just basically doodling <laughs> while she's talking, which is sort of a, you know, it's, which makes me wonder whether, you know, the subtext was somewhat intentional because, you know, that's a very telling shot and it's a pretty, you know, you're saying, you're making a pretty big statement with that. Like basically the doctor doesn't really care what she has to say, yeah. which kind of goes with, you know, the, the overall, uh, the, the treatment of women in the film. But, um, I don't know. I mean, am I completely off the wall with my interpretation? Did you get any of that at all or? Yeah, and I, I, I would agree with that. And I, I think that um, one of the things that's really interesting about this film is the way that plays with vampire lore and the fact that the the main vampire is a woman, it it plays into that it plays into that subversion of what we're used to in the in the genre. And I, I think that's one of the things that's compelling about this movie. And another thing is, this is essentially about erotic desires in the mind. And it's very psychological in that respect. And, I mean, that's one of the things that you look at. And really, if if, we're, if we want to, I, I think you could almost make a beeline with this film to something like Boonwell's Belle de Jour or even Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, where... The the idea the the Iraq ideas that people have in the mind is really more important than what we see on screen. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because yeah, you're right because again, um, <clears throat> um, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think in the film like uh, um, Countess Nadine first makes her appearance to Linda uh, through dreams through the mind, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that's a very interesting point. Again. <laughs> This is, I'm so glad we had this talk because uh, I, I would have never uh, associated with this with like eyes wide shut. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, we are sort of overcome with our fantasies and uh, they can either be for the best or for the worst. But uh, yeah, I mean, the mind is really, uh, it's, a, it's a really tricky thing. And no matter how much damage you can do to the body, it's, it pales in comparison to what you can do to your mind. Yeah, uh, this one is not as readily available. You kind of have to go looking for it. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have a video store uh, in downtown Atlanta where uh, they happen to have this available, and so I was able to rent over the summer, and uh, I'm glad that I did. Um, it was. It, it's definitely. It's definitely a movie where it's like you look at the title, you definitely think one thing. And there are moments where the film definitely leans into that one thing that you're expecting. But if you look deeper and deeper into it, um, you're going to see there's more going on to it on with it than just exploitation. And that's one of the things that's so I, I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about Franco in general 
and the way he uses genre and his his appreciation for genre is something that you you feel in every frame of the films they makes but and it it's part of what keeps us interested in the films even if there might be moments where you know like for me girl in rio was the one where the narration that narrative really slowed down mm -hmm. it's not that long of a movie there are moments where it almost becomes glacial to a certain extent but that's a different that's a very different genre this one still moves very very deliberately paced but in a way where um the story is uh always on the move and that's one of the things that i really appreciate about um this film in franco in general yeah and, and i'm glad to hear you mention that because again you know much like how some people you know they'll look at his more um uh pornographic works and sort of write him off as one type of filmmaker i do think that for people who are willing to look past some of the um some of these things and you know if they're willing to give his films a chance i think they'd be very surprised by what you'd find i mean you know, I and you know he is one of my. Well, I mean, it's funny because I think you said he was my favorite. He's definitely one of my favorites, but uh, I think someone recently eclipsed him, and maybe that could be another podcast we could talk about because I feel like this is a filmmaker that you would probably really dig. Uh, his name's uh, Jean Rollin, and uh, the best way to describe him would be like uh, he's got the uh, cinematic style of a Tarkovsky with the surrealism of a Jean Cocteau. Uh, all by way of hammer horror. So uh, I, uh, I feel like you might get a kick out of that. But but yeah, no, I mean, one of the reasons why Franco is one of my favorites is that there are, you know, there's, there, there are some parallels with our, with our careers in that because, you know, like when I started off, I was making, you know, kind of like experimental films before I graduated to, um, you know, horror and eroticism. And, and again, just like uh, so many of the uh, stories, the behind-the-scenes stories, I mean, one of the things that just Franco was famous for doing uh, was, uh, you know, he would shoot uh, one film, like, during the day, and then with the same cast and crew, he would shoot another film at night, and uh, uh, without the producer realizing what he was doing. <laughs> and so sometimes you would have actors be very confused by the lines that they were given because they didn't seem to relate to anything that they were doing during the daytime. <laughs> so I think that, so, uh, so, so yeah, so that's, when you see stuff like that, you could see, like, how someone's filmography can easily, you know, build up. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, I mean, again, uh, I, like I made a little list here of some films for anyone who might be interested in uh, exploring more of the of more of his work. So um, these are all from his uh, golden age period, uh, which I'm familiar with. Um, I feel like you know you should probably watch these before you sort of watch some of the sillier stuff, um, just because you'll probably have a better appreciation of him as a as an artist. So, I mean, the first film I would recommend was, uh, I mentioned it earlier, uh, The Awful Dr. Orloff. Uh, this came out in 1962. Uh, like my friend uh, David Zizello said, this is the, uh, the big bang of the Franco universe, uh, where a lot, of the, um, a lot of the artistic choices, a lot of the, uh, well, basically his style sort of began here. And, and this is probably the ideal entry point, because this is even more accessible than something like Count Dracula. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I would start with that, uh, then I'd go to the sadistic Baron von Klaus, also in 62, uh, mostly because, like I mentioned, it's the first Jallo, it's a, it's a whodunit murder mystery, so it's kind of fun to try and figure out. Um, 
and then uh, after that, there's the diabolical Dr. Zed, uh, made in 1966. Uh, this is a really important film to watch because uh, in addition to it being a, a gothic black and white sci-fi revenge film, um, there's this is also one of the first films to have a pretty strong infusion of the eroticism that he would become known for later. So, uh, so it's a fun film to watch for that development. Uh, after that, uh, in 1969, there was a film he made called Marquis de Sade's uh, Justine. Uh, that starred uh, Klaus Kinski as the Marquis de Sade and uh, Jack Palance, of all people, <laughs> he shows up. Um, and then, of course, there's Venus and Furs, which we talked about. There's Count Dracula, Vampiros Lesbos. Um, there's also a couple of other films from the 70s. One of them is called uh, Eugenie, the story of her journey into perversion. And uh, this is a fun film, uh, mostly uh, because of the behind-the-scenes shenanigans that went on. Because um, Christopher Lee is in this film, but he this might be an example of how a film was shot during the day with Christopher Lee and then at night. Christopher Lee was given some things to do and say, so he didn't really know, uh, like what he was being a part of. But so he's in the film, uh, and his scenes really stand out because they have nothing to do with what's going on in the movie. And then the film itself is this really, really, really sexy, very smart kind of cat and mouse uh, thriller. And when Christopher Lee found out what he was in, he uh, sort of severed ties with Jess Franco, uh, at least for a little bit. Uh, another film I'd recommend is Eugenie de Sade, which is basically his version of Lolita. Uh, this film stars Soledad Miranda, and uh, it's really a lot of fun. Um, uh, there's also She Killed in Ecstasy. Uh, this is a film that he made right after Vampiros Lesbos with the same cast. So it's a bit jarring at the beginning because you're kind of, because I think literally uh, uh, Soledad Miranda, who is a villain in Vampiros Lesbos, is now the hero, whereas the actress who played Linda Westinghouse, she's the villain in this one. Um, and then the last two films that I would recommend came out in 1973, and these are what I would call his more Terrence Malick-style movies. Um, there's a film called A Virgin Among the Living Dead, uh, also known as Christina, Princess of Eroticism. And uh, this is a really, really beautiful film and almost a film worthy of its own podcast just because this was made right after Soledad Miranda died. Mm. And you could sort of tell that this film is sort of meant to be a requiem for her because uh, there's an actress uh, playing a role that I would imagine Soledad Miranda would have been cast in. Mm. And uh, a really beautiful shot at the end where, you know, she dies and then they all like her and her family sort of walk into this uh, marshland and just sort of sink below the uh, surface of the water. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more beautiful than I'm making it sound, but I would check that out. And then of course the last one would be uh, uh, the bare breasted countess, uh, also known as female vampire, which is probably the most, <laughs> most innocuous title ever. But um, and, uh, this is probably, uh, this would probably be a great film to end on. If you were going through all his films from the golden age, uh, this is a movie about, uh, it, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's narrative is very thin. Uh, it's very much a film guided by mood and atmosphere as opposed to uh, a narrative, but mm-hmm. it's about, uh, a woman on an island in Greece and uh, she's the last of her kind and uh, the only way she's able to uh, um, sustain herself is through uh, um, gorging on uh, the fluids of her victims. So uh, depending on what version of the film you're watching, the uh, the R-rated version, those fluids are blood. And then the X-rated version, well, I'll leave it at your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so yeah, I mean, those would probably be the 12 that I would start with. Um, as you mentioned, some of them are available um, on streaming services. Most of these were put out by uh, Kino Lorber, and I believe that Kino Lorber has their own streaming site now called Kino Now. Yes. And all the Jess Franco, and including all the Jean Rollet films, are on there. So for those of you looking to maybe save some money, because these things can get a little pricey if you buy them on Blu-ray, um, they're mostly all on Kino, um, in, with the exception of maybe one or two. So, yeah, go out, check them out, you know, uh, let us know what you think. Okay. Well, uh, Matthew, thank you very much for not only joining me today, but for introducing me to the uh, world of uh, Jess Franco. I am looking forward to seeing uh, more of those films as I go go along through the years. I definitely, the ones that I watched definitely uh, piqued my interest um, in looking at more of those films that uh, you just listen i i appreciate the uh conversation today and i'm i'm glad that you uh brought i'm i'm glad that you brought franco to my uh to to my attention and that we were able to talk to talk about him today oh yeah me uh, and i'm glad i'm glad you uh you uh you took on this challenge and uh, it's always fun to talk about jess franco i mean you know i, I as big a body of his work that he has, I still feel he's still a bit of a cult figure, even within the world of cult figures, because you know he's not necessarily as well known as, let's say, a Dario Argento or a Mario Bava. But you know, again, he's one of these filmmakers who's really worth uh, the time that it takes to watch his films. And uh, I guess I'll leave you with one final bit of uh, trivia on Just Franco. I forgot to mention this at the beginning. But um, just to show you how well regarded he is by his fellow filmmakers, uh, Orson Welles actually hired Jess Franco to be his assistant director on uh, Don Quixote. Mm. So, um, so, and uh, I believe also uh, uh, one of his films, uh, Succubus, was called by Fritz Lang as the most uh, erotic film he's ever seen, which I'm not sure about that because, you know, uh, when, when you think of eroticism, uh, Fritz Lang is the first person who comes to mind. Yeah. But, but yeah, but anyway, just to show you, like, he is well regarded. And, um, I, you know, I just wish more people knew about him. And uh, if we were able to uh, help uh, expose him and introduce him to some more people, um, I'm, you know, I'm one happy pappy. <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much for joining me today, Matthew. Oh, absolutely. Take care there. I'd like to thank Matthew for joining me today, as well as, once again, um, introducing me to the world of Jess Franco. I am looking forward to uh, digging more into his films as the years go on. That's it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. It might be our last one of the year. Might try to get another one in. We'll see. But thank you very much for joining me this year. Uh, 2021 is hopefully going to be a better year in general. Um, but um, as far as the podcast goes, we're going to be continuing to work on the class of the last few episodes of the class of 1999 series, which I'm looking forward to getting to as well as some other uh, topics. And we might do some 20 year retrospectives on uh, some 2001 films too, because that was a pretty fantastic year as well. Uh, thank you very much for joining me at the Sonic Cinema Podcast. 
Uh, check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Subscribe at Google, Apple, or Spotify. And that's it for this time. This is Brian Scuttle, and thank you for joining me, as always, at www.sonic-cinema.com. <laughs> Thank you.